Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Ethiopia's Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed has made dramatic changes since he came to power earlier this year. He's named a woman as president. A well-respected female human rights attorney is now the head of the Supreme Court. And half the cabinet is women. Abiy ended regional tensions with Eritrea and Somalia. The heads of state are at work on a Horn of Africa economic plan. And to give you an idea how big a change this is, an Ethiopian airplane landed in Somalia for the first time in 40 years today. But there's still dramatic challenges ahead. Ethnic tensions are high in Ethiopia. A mass grave with 200 people in it was just uncovered. Ethiopia's economy runs a high wire act with big growth and huge debt. With me to talk about the ups and downs of change in Ethiopia is Sina Jimjimo. She's president of the Coalition of Oromo Advocates for Human Rights and Democracy. Nice to talk with you again, Sina. Likewise. Thank you, Jerome. Also with us is Charles Schaefer. He's professor of international studies at Valparaiso University and has focused on Ethiopia over the years. Good to talk with you, Chuck. Hello. Chuck, I wonder if you could give people a little primer on Abiy Ahmed and where he came from. A lot of people may not know about Ethiopia's prime minister. He just came to power in in April. Um, Who is he? Well, he's a very young man. He's an Oromo. That's the largest um, ethnic group in Ethiopia. He's 42 years old. He he um, went uh, into the military at a fairly young age, um, also has some degrees in uh, computer science, um, moved into their uh, security area, and um, has was instrumental in... Um, sort of moving the whole security apparatus into the time of the digital age. Moreover, and this is the surprising thing, he got a PhD at Addis Ababa University in peace and reconciliation. Go figure, a military person looking at peace and reconciliation. And that, I think, sort of uh, typifies the um, sort of the duality of his personality. Is he really a product of the military or is he, you know, um, a person committed to peace and, and finding reconciliation? with neighbors. The events seem to indicate the latter. Sina, I wonder if you could comment a little, and we've talked with you before in the program about the situation with the Oromo who have uh, been protesting over land issues uh, epically in Ethiopia. It, can he address them and address their issues? Is he, is he going at the thing that most Oromos want him to do, which is change the, change the situation on land? Uh, Jerome, that's actually very interesting because if you look at it, indeed he's an Oromo and indeed this is the first time, even though Oromos occupy or they are 50 per, over 50% of the population, they never really came to power. So this is the first time the power dynamic is in the hand of Oromo. However, even though Abi is an Oromo, is he really, can he really address the Oromo question? That is something that we yet to see as an Oromo human rights advocate that have been working on this issue for a very, very long time. He obviously talks about forgiveness and peace and reconciliation, but the Oromo question is still yet to be answered. The issue of language, the issue of the issue of land, the issue of uh, the capital city, where located in the heart of Oromia, but it's still a separate uh, uh, area that's considered under the federal, which is, does not uh, be accounted or does not have any kind of source for the uh, Oromia government or via regional government. So the issues, the concern that Oromo have asked and protested is still yet to be answered. However, 
He's obviously very popular among Goromos, just as much as he's popular among other uh, ethnic groups. Uh, One of the things that's been interesting to see is how he has um, welcomed dissidents, dissidents who've been outside of Ethiopia for years and were persecuted vigorously by the regime for many years back into the country. And uh, Berhanu Nega is back in the country. He was with an organization called Jinbat 7, which was described as a terrorist organization for many years and did take up armed conflict uh, in Eritrea. He was based in Eritrea for a few years and, and was fighting uh, militarily the United States. And he was a economics professor at Bucknell University. He's got a wild story. Um, but these kind of people are now coming back into Ethiopia. What, what does that say to you, Charles? Um, I think that's rather interesting in the sense that essentially Ethiopia has prided itself over the longest time of welcoming sort of the the banner carriers of uh, whatever it is, a political party or or whatnot, back to Ethiopia to show their um, magnanimity and their inclusiveness. Um, there's always a sub-story going on beneath that, and that is, what is uh, the relationship between the government and um, the the local party member, the people who support, maybe without even membership, of, say, the OLF or the Gimbot 7? And that... Um, while things look fairly good right now, is still rather tenuous. Um, if I can just elaborate a little bit, um, Dawood Ibsa, who is the sort of the, the head of the Oromo Liberation Front, um, had been in exile in Eritrea for many, many years with about 1,500 a, a of his um, military uh, fighters. And they were invited back to Ethiopia. What has arisen in the last two weeks is that there are factions of the OLF who are still armed, who do not want to disarm out in Walaga region, that is the sort of the southwestern part of the Oromia state. And um, there seems to be some skirmishes between um, the OPDO, renamed the uh, Oromo Democratic Party, and uh, these holdouts of the OLF. So again, what has happened prior to Abi's administration and in his administration is you you go for the flagships and then you, you continue the policy underneath. Uh, what do you think about that, Sina? Is that something that um, is there kind of a welcoming attitude, but still you are keeping control? Uh, that I think uh, uh, the professor said very well about that. And uh, the issue, I just recently came actually from Ethiopia and I've really met with the, a lot of the leadership, including the OLF of Bodawid. Um, so... It is, it is kind of complex because this is a, it's kind of a democracy overnight. What has happened is these people have been ruled by gun, by uh, military for so long, and all of a sudden there seems to be a, a very, very soft aspect of democracy What I, uh, is concerning because people in the parties and individuals uh, that came from uh, out of the country, including David and Gabo Seben, who are all of a sudden allowed to uh, participate in the country, in, a, in the system. However, uh, you see here and there a uh, flame of violence, and that shows you, that tells you that the government is really not fully in control. At the same time, the people that came from out of the country, people are in a different political parties, are also having a... Uh, 
there's, there's just not clear conversation or be on the same page. I'm talking with uh, Sina Jimjimo, president of the Coalition of Romo Advocates for Human Rights and Democracy, and Chuck Schaefer, uh, fr- professor of international studies at Valparaiso University. And we're talking about the changes in uh, Ethiopia since Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed came to power in in April. And coming up in a few moments, we'll have film contributor Milo Stalik. He'll have a uh, conversation with the filmmaker of a new documentary about the opera singer Maria Callas. Um, I wanted to talk about some of the um, ethnic tensions that have have popped up in Ethiopia. I mentioned at the top that there was a mass grave with 200 people in it that was just uncovered. And um, all this democracy talk seems to have uh, lifted the lid off of ethnic tensions. There's still a huge amount of displacement that goes on inside Ethiopia. Um, Sina, do do you want to talk about that for a a moment? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yes, yeah, so the, they discovered the, uh, the the mass grave of uh, 200 plus people, and that came actually from investigating Abdi Muhammad, who is the head of the Somali regime for the past about 14, 13 years. So the discovery is very, it's not surprising uh, to a lot of people. He have displaced uh, even just on the Romo side, over 2 million people were displaced in the past two years. And, and then he have killed and have uh, kind of pushed people in the sky from the Somalia region for the past over a decade. So he's a very notoriously notoriously known uh, regional government in that area. And, so, and, and this, is the, this is the regional government. This is just to be clear about this. It's the regional government in Ethiopia that's dominated by Somalis. And they had uh, kind of a, a, a death squad kind of thing going on. Well, it's, it's not dominated because Ethiopia is a federal, uh, federal state. So every region have their own uh, regional uh, people. The Oromo have the Oromo leadership and the Somali have their own. So the Oromo and the Somali have this long border. So it has been ethnic uh, violence a little bit here and there. But in the past two years, Abdi Ile, being the regional head uh, in the Somali, have killed, uh, pushed at least over 2.4 million Oromos in that area. So he, in the mass grave, is discovered uh, based on the investigation. And he, from the source that I got and some of the BBC in Afano Romo, is that uh, it was confession. He made it to the police that he kind of told them these are where the, some of the graves are, and the one of the government went over there and gave the about 14 extension time to kind of investigate his what he said to kind of validate is that true, and they indeed discovered the mass grave. Um, Charles Schaefer, do you think that um, the country's on the right track there with some level of accountability? They're investigating. There, there seems to be people losing their office, and that's good. Indeed. Um, I mean, there's been a huge uh, changeover in all sorts of political bureaus um, and in cabinets. Uh, As you said at the very beginning, 50% of the cabinets um, are headed by women. In other words, it's probably the most gender-balanced cabinet, political cabinet in the world at this point. Um, But many of these women... You know, one sort of thinks are maybe sort of uh, more um, more for the visual aspect of it. But if you look at their biographies, many of them have, you know, two, 20, 30 years of experience working up through the ranks. So they're very, very competent people. I think what is also noted, especially with uh, Mesa Ash- Ashanafi, who is the new Supreme Court Chief Justice, 
she's the one that started the Ethiopian Women's Lawyers Association, which is basically the only human rights association in Ethiopia that has that has survived the Derg and and uh, um, the EPRDF. Uh, she is a real committed person to um, fair play and, and justice, equal justice for all. So there's a lot of wonderful things that are happening. Um, the I think the question that you're sort of getting at is, can this counterbalance um, the deep state? You know, uh, those um, people from the EPRDF, mostly t- from Tigray, who had vested interest in the old system, in the, in the oppression of various ethnic groups and various peoples for their own betterment through uh, party-sponsored companies and all that kind of stuff. Um, they're not going to go away. And, um, you know, it's still up in the air whether the reforms that Abi Ahmad is uh, making will in fact, um, be cemented into place. Sina, do you have some thoughts on the new cabinet and uh, the changes there? Yeah, I mean, like, again, uh, like you say, it's true that this is very diverse and uh, very positive in a positive direction. However, uh, the old uh, TPLF are still part of the government. And in terms of accountability, to bring these people to accountable, to even ask for it, to even pursue accountable, it's kind of been, a, it seems to be a challenging for the Abi administration because to go after this, it is kind of, you know, creating another source of instability because these people don't want to be accountable. In fact, the case of uh, Asafa uh, is, a, is a prime example who just recently the U.S. Uh, Mike Kaufman, U.S. congressman, asked to be prosecuted for uh, human rights abuse under Magnitsky Act. So, you know, he was elected as a executive uh, part of the TPLF to come to be uh, part of the EPRDF leadership. But this guy, he's actually in hiding. He's wanted by Ethiopian government. However, the TPLF and people who are were in the, uh, in the power uh, are still considered him a, a very important person that should be, instead of being prosecutor, should be in a leadership position. So there are a uh, little bit of groups like uh, TPLF and they are including like... Um, Gimbo Seven and other organ- political organizations who have uh, are not really uh, should be not doing what they should be doing and working with the government and transforming uh, toward positive democracy. At the same time, obviously, the government is also not very strong, and you cannot have democracy overnight when yesterday they were gone. Today, all of a sudden, there seems to be lack of accountability, and so there is a problem from that angle. Uh, has the U.S. been really supportive on this, Sina? I know you've been in testifying in Congress, and uh, if the U.S. wants to see democracy break out on the Horn of Africa, uh, it would seem to be time to put the pedal to the metal. Uh, yes, actually, I think uh, the U.S. support, and uh, I, I'm not so sure how much they're really investing in it, but I know based on the ambassador and some of the Congress, we travel to Ethiopia together, they seem to be very positive outlook for it. And uh, But at the same time, I feel like the U.S. Is really should be investing more in making sure this transforming into democracy is very eminent and important. And the time we have is a window of opportunity is very limited. If not, this is a very, I think, I think based 
next country that have a deep, deep grievance over a hundred years. And if something were to happen, a civil war is is, is not too far for for Ethiopia because of the you know the past history and the ethnic division. So I mean, U.S. government is a very positive outlook based on my conversation. However, I don't see much of investment to make sure this democracy actually is sustained and actually put their money where their mouth is. So I don't really see that. You know, I was uh, reading some remarks from Berhan Onega from Jinbat 7, and he said, well, Ethiopia has tried twice before to reform itself. If it whiffs on the third try here, it's, it could be, you know, disastrous. Um, Charles, do you have some thoughts on, on um, how the, I, the I agree. Are? I think he's, he's, he hit the nail on the head. Um, essentially, Abiy Ahmed has uh, about a year and a half yet to transform the political landscape of Ethiopia prior to the national elections. Um, to take place in about May or June of 2020. And to an extent, what he has promised is that there is going to be an open field, that uh, there's going to be um, any political party that is um, uh, acknowledged can compete. Um, And he's hoping that he will transform the EPRDF so much in his progressive image that they will take the... uh, uh, the election, and he will legitimize himself and uh, his reforms. Um, back to the issue of the international part, though, I think um, his cap, Abiy Ahmad and his cabinet, especially his his um, uh, new president, uh, Sahel Work um, Zaudi, they're concentrating on Europe more than America. Uh, Abiy has gone to Europe twice on official state visits to France and, and uh, Germany. And to an extent, Macron and Merkel have are looking for allies. And they see him as sort of a champion of globalization and sort of progressive policies in this in this is in contradistinction um, to sort of the the movement to nationalism and so forth that we're we're witnessing all the time. So, I think he is a, a savvy politician, and he sees that the United States might be a little bit difficult. It would be better to go to Europe uh, to broaden his uh, international appeal. Um, likewise, he's, he's been courting Saudi Arabia and um, the UAE uh, versus uh, Qatar to try to broaden the appeal, get more money. And the UAE has responded with a $3 billion gift to Ethiopia in wow. the last month. So he's doing a lot. Um, but he also feels under pressure um, that this window that Berhanu Nega talked about <laughs> could close uh, in this year and a half before the election. We'll keep our eye on what's going on in Ethiopia. Thanks for joining us, Charles Schaefer, Professor of International Studies at Valparaiso University, and Sina Jimjimo. She's president of the Coalition of Oromo Advocates for Human Rights and Democracy. Thanks for joining us and talking about Ethiopia's reform prime minister, Abi Ahmed. Coming up after the break, we'll have film contributor Milo Stalik. We'll hear about a new film about Maria Callas. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The legend of Greek-American opera singer and actress Maria Callas has only grown since her death some 40 years ago. 
Maria by Callis is the new documentary by filmmaker-photographer Tom Wolf. The film chronicles the singer's life with a unique twist. Milo Stalik, director at Facet Chicago, interviews the world's innovative filmmakers. For today's masterclass, he chats with Wolf about what drew him to Callis. Maria by Callis opens Friday, November 16th at the Music Box Theater. So, Tom, Maria Callas, who is the subject of your film, Callas by Maria, has been dead a little bit over 40 years. So why now Maria Callas for you? Well, actually, if I made the film, is Maria by Callas. Okay, Maria by Callas, sorry. It could have been Callas by Maria, <laughs> okay. but it's a very good point. You know, the idea of the film that it's Callas, the artist and the public figure that everyone knows, who reveals the woman, Maria, a woman that is not so well-known and actually, you know, was very different from the artist. And that's the starting point of the film. She confesses in an unknown interview that there are two people in her, Maria and the Callas that she has to live up to. And the whole idea of Maria by Callas is that we go throughout her life and she's the one telling us her own story. The film is entirely in her own words. And it is really about revealing the woman behind the artist, behind the legend, and also getting an understanding of how her life as a woman had a link with her life as an artist, and also how her interpretations, uh, which are unique and praised, uh, you know, she's praised as one of the greatest singers of all times, and also an amazing actress. Uh, we get an understanding through the film of how the various events in her personal life were linked to the way she interpreted uh, some of her great arias and the music. So just concentrating on her life, so first there was her mother, with whom she did not have a particularly supportive relationship. Her mother was rather controlling, right, and pushy. Then there was her great teacher, who really brought her up as a singer. Then there was her husband, Meneghini, who was kind of also controlling her and pushing her, but also living off her celebrity. And then there was Aristotle Onassis. So would those be the key moments that kind of define her? I guess. I mean, those are some of the key people uh, in her life. I mean, uh, we could name some others, you know, uh, Lucino Visconti, for instance, Pier Paolo Pasolini, who shot her only film as an actress, Medea, and some others. But yes, these are some of the key people that we see in the film and also the evolution in her life through these encounters. Uh, obviously, her encounter with Onassis was a major breakthrough in her life because that is, again, in the duality between Maria and Callas, where for the first part of her life, she had to sacrifice Maria for Callas. Uh, so in other words, her personal life, her career. At that point, when in the early 60s, she meets with Onassis, she will do the opposite and she will slowly start to sing less and less and not knowing it, she will end up sacrificing Callas for Maria. Uh, she will sacrifice her career and her voice in the hope of fulfilling a, a happy personal life, which of course will not work out, unfortunately, because Onassis will end up leaving her for Jackie Kennedy in 1968. And we go through all these events in the film, you know, through different aspects. We see all the public life aspects, but we also see the most intimate ones, thanks to the letters that are being read in the film by the wonderful mezzo-soprano Joyce Di Donato, who gives life to Maria's words. And in her most intimate letters, we are uh, revealed how she as a woman goes through all of that and the struggle and the challenges that comes with it. 
and most interestingly is what happens afterwards and how her relationship with the Nazis unravels and continues even after his marriage with Jackie Kennedy. So you're a young guy. What brought you to Maria Callas? I mean, she was dead by the time that you, that you were born, right? I suppose, I suppose it was by accident, or shall we say by destiny, because I didn't really know who she was, or I barely knew her name six years ago. And when I discovered her by just listening to one of her recordings, it was a real revelation, you know, it was a feeling of great emotion and a fascination for a figure that I didn't know and represented an amazing life, you know, an amazing destiny, someone who started off uh, from a very modest background, a rather poor family of Greek immigrants in New York. She was born in New York, then going through the war in Athens and ending up in Italy after the war uh, without money or anything and uh, struggling for a few years from audition to audition and then becoming this world icon and legend and one of the greatest singers of all times. I think her life is really fascinating as much as her singing is unique. And I realized quickly enough that there was people all around the world and of all generations of all ages, all backgrounds that were listening to her and interested in her. And so... It didn't come as much as a surprise what was happening to me then. And I hope the film helps also a lot of people to discover or rediscover her. You're listening to Worldview. I'm Milos Stalik speaking with filmmaker Tom Wolf, whose new film is called Maria by Callas. A lot is known about Maria Callas, and part of what is known and part of what made her famous and such a mythical figure is this diva myth that she was difficult, that she was demanding, that she walked off. And you, in the film, you really take a kind of a defensive posture to trying to unravel this myth of her being this irresponsible, temperamental, difficult star. Right. Well, the key word in what you said is myth. Because truly, what we see in the film is the reality behind the myth. Behind those events that were so-called scandals, uh, where she appeared to be so-called a diva, a tempestuous, and all of that. And the truth is that the world did get that impression, but not knowing what was actually happening, you know, how these events unraveled, and also the amount of injustice that she had to go through to try and, you know, prove her right. We go into all of this in the film, but indeed we see a very different version of the facts because we leave through these events in the film from her point of view and we see them unraveling from the inside. Some of the great examples that we see in the film are the so-called Rome scandal where she walks out in the middle of the performance while the president and a certain amount of celebrities were in the theater or the event later on when she was fired from the Met while performing the same day in Dallas. All of these events that had been covered in the past, we can see them today in the film through a completely different light and get such a deeper understanding also of how tough it was on her to go through all of that and try and justify herself. And, you know, in the end, throughout her whole life, she had to fight against all the things that have been said and written about her. And she kept on saying, one day I will have to write my biography to put the record straight. And I think she never really got to do that because she died so young at age 53. But perhaps this film can fulfill the role of an autobiography because she's the one telling her own story all throughout. 
Well, and that adds to the myth, her dying young and being alone in Paris, having been dumped by Onassis, her great love. And so that's part of that whole myth that's grown up around her. And besides her music, it's really kept her name alive in some ways. Yes, of course. A lot of these figures that became world icons during their lifetimes and died young, there has been a lot of myths around them. But I think it's because we had so little testimonial of their own, and we had very little testimonial of hers until today. And we can have a completely new perspective with the film because of the amount of new testimonial that we have. A lot of the film is never-before-seen-or-heard footage, and a lot of it is of her speaking. The backbone of the film is an interview that was considered to be lost in 50 years. That is so much more of a confession rather than an interview. And all of her letters also reveal so much about herself that we didn't know before. And I think it's a great way to understand her better, to rediscover her for people who who think they know already about her. And also it's a great way for people who know nothing or very little about her to discover her completely, because the film is a very complete portrait of all of her life and the major events of her life and covers all aspects of her, both as a woman and as an artist. And I think we get a great understanding of why she was so admired and considered to be so great and is still, 40 years after she passed, completely unique. You make an interesting choice in the film because you choose to uh, give us pretty much full arias of many of her famous performances, uh, particularly from the bel canto repertory, from Norma, the, her famous aria uh, Visidarte. Why did you make that choice? Well, it was very important for me for several reasons. Um, it was a bold choice. Of course, uh, you know, we could have made the film adding a bunch of excerpts of a few seconds of the various repertoire that she had. But we chose instead to focus on very specific arias and have them complete because the arias are subtexts on their own for the narration of the film. As I said, the film is complete in her own words. And what we realized by watching it is that the arias, the lyrics of the songs she sings and the characters that she interprets, those lyrics tell us something, reveal us something about herself, about her Maria, about her life as a woman, the various times where she decides to perform this or that aria. It's telling us something about what she's going through at that particular time of her life. So there's a whole subsex to it. And also, you know, the film is really made for the theater, for the big screen. And I think it's an opportunity today, 40 years after she passed, bringing her on the big screen and bringing her singing in the cinema is bringing an experience that is as close as it gets to the experience of the audiences back in the days who would be there in the opera houses and the theaters and the concert halls where she would perform. And I wanted to give a chance to the audiences to experience that, you know, the feeling that she's right there in front of you singing for you because you see every face expression, every gesture aside of the music that she interprets that really characterizes her art and explains us why she was so unique in the way she performs an aria and also how she gives life to a character being Norma or Tosca or Carmen and how different they are from one another. So that was the idea of having some of these arias complete. But at the same time, 
the film is very balanced. It's not a musical film and it's not opera throughout because we really wanted to leave a good enough time in the film for just her life and the events in her personal life. So, Tom, you didn't grow up yourself from childhood as an opera lover or, for that matter, as a classical music lover. No, not at all. And so what would you say in terms of your own discovery of classical music, discovery of opera, discovery of Maria Callas, how this film that you've now made speaks to a younger audience that doesn't really know Callas and is not connected to opera or classical music? Well, you see, that was one of the goals of making the film. You know, when I started discovering opera and Callas six years ago, as you said, it was not my background and I knew very little of it, if not nothing. And it was a journey discovering it all. And, you know, when I was searching and trying to learn more about her, about Callas, I think that in the end, um, this is the film that I would have wanted to watch. This is the film I ended up making, the film that I would have wanted to watch back then when I was discovering it. Well, that's a good reason for making it. (laughs) Absolutely, because, you know, it has everything about her life, but also it's a great introduction to opera itself. And for me, she was an introduction to opera. I started to love opera after hearing some of her recordings. I think she makes opera very accessible to everyone. You don't have to be knowledgeable or an amateur to be moved by her singing and her music. And in that way, I really hope that the film will be a means for younger generations to discover her and maybe fall in love with her and fall in love with opera, as it was my case. You're listening to Worldview. I'm Milos Telic. I've been speaking with filmmaker Tom Wolf, whose new film about Maria Callas is called Maria by Callas. Thank you very much. Thank you. Maria by Callis opens Friday, November 16th at the Music Box Theater. After the break, it's Weekend Passport with Nari Safavi, and we'll show you how to have an international good time in Chicago. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview from WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. That's a little oud music from one of the featured people this weekend on Weekend Passport with Nari Safavi, our global citizen friend, where he lets you know how to have an international good time on the weekend and make some suggestions. And um, you like this oud player, don't you? Uh, good day, Jerome. Yes, I, li- I like uh, Simon Shaheen, a Palestinian musician, and the instrument that he plays, uh, the mellifluously that he, he plays it, is a predecessor to what today we call the guitar. And it's a, it's a very traditional music that's in all kinds of different types of Middle Eastern ensembles. And he is play, performing this weekend here. He's also a violin master, by the way, I should say. I should mention that too. And I think he's doing a solo performance here to, uh, in Chicago this weekend, Saturday, over at the Old Town School of Folk Music, 4545 North Lincoln Avenue at 
8 p.m. And I think he will at least be playing the oud. Maybe he will do some solo violin as well. All right. Simone Shaheen at the Old Town School of Folk Music on Saturday night. Um, and now on to our featured piece. Exactly. Yeah, there's a interesting show going on this weekend over at the Stony Island, uh, you know, the old bank building that Theaster Gates had taken over and has turned it into an art center. And the show is called Iconic Black Panther Exhibit, which I guess happened about a year ago in Oakland for the 50th anniversary of the Black Panther Party. And now it's come to Chicago and there is now a Chicago version of it. It's the 50th anniversary of the Black Panthers in Illinois. And uh, we've got all the people involved with it here. Uh, Rosalind McGarry is here. She's an artist and founder of the Sepia Collective, which put uh, the exhibit together. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, tell us a little more about the story of the exhibit there. Uh, well, Sepia Collective is a fluid art collective, and um, it was founded in 2016, um, just ahead of our first iteration of Iconic Black Panther, which opened in Oakland for the 50th. And um, our second iteration was in L.A. last year. And uh, this show, Iconic Black Panther, is, of course, um, a celebration and recognition of the 50th uh, anniversary of the the uh, inception of the Illinois chapter here in in um, in Illinois, um, and we were just lucky to have so many Panthers in town to acknowledge and celebrate um, with us. Um, so it's kind sure. of epic in scale. You've got film screenings every Friday night. You've got art there. You've got uh, panel discussions, uh, people talking all, all through uh, through January. Yes. Um, our partnership with Stony Island Arts Bank and Rebuild Foundation has um, led to wonderful, wonderful programming. We've, we've been able to – this um, show is the longest running of all the show's that preceded it. It's two months. The last shows were one month and five weeks. So um, in partnership with them, we've got a lot of programming, a lot of wonderful um, shows and panel discussions and um, and just uh, local um, um, involvement. Here is a little bit of the local involvement. David Anthony Gary's here. He's a Chicago-based visual artist, as is Candace Hunter, and they both have uh, pieces in the exhibit. Great to meet you both. Good meeting you. Great meeting you. Um, tell us about why you wanted to be involved in this, Why you what, what your art is. Uh, David? Um, I am a visual artist that I have sort of two separate practices. The work that I brought to this show is portrait-based, um, and I wanted to focus on creating monumental works, um, particularly of the people who are either influences to me or, or serve as a part of my daily life. Um, I chose three of the women from the Black Panther Party um, as the subject for my piece for my piece for this show, um, as the as sort of the core or center. Um, of the energy that the Black Panther Party has given to us, um, and I wanted to give that back, and so I did a triple portrait. Uh, who who are the women? Um, Elaine Brown, Kathleen Cleaver, and Angela Davis. There you go. And uh, Candace, tell us about your piece. It's. Um, I have several pieces oh, in the okay. show. I think I'm the only artist who has several pieces in it. Uh, <clears throat> well, you must be the most enthusiastic. Well, when I got the call from Tracy Hall, who was the curator here in Chicago, it didn't say how much work. And she just said, I'm reaching out to my artist to, you know, fulfill the show. And I'm – Dave and I are both prolific mm-hmm. in that we work – 
constantly, it's 12-hour days for us creating. And so I created five new pieces before I found out they wanted one. And I went, oh, my. So what do we do with all of this work? So I, I took in two pieces that were framed the same, and I said, it's a diptych. And they bought that. And I was just like, oh, good, there are two in the show now out of my five. And then I posted another piece that had, I didn't think had anything to do with the show. And Tracy said, Candace, I need to come by the studio and look at the piece. And it's called Jimmy, 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 or What Would Baldwin Say Now? Mm-hmm. Uh, because James Baldwin is very much a part of my practice, his his intelligence, um, his his blackness is very much a part of what I do on a regular. And so she came and she saw it and I says, but I need you to see this one other piece called Angels and Ancestors that Huey is at the center of. And she said, oh. So I now have four pieces. <laughs> oh, way show. to go. You, really wor- <laughs> you wormed them all in. So I, you know, but I think my favorite piece is called Fred is Dead. Um, because we can't be Chicagoans um, and black and not live in the legacy of the murder of Fred Hampton. Um, I was very, very young when it happened, but you still live in the ripples of that. And his older brother, who we lost a year ago, I think, um, was keeping his brother's name alive in Chicago all the time, and we were friends. And so... I do photo transfer collage, and I found the images of the mattress that was shredded with the multiple bullets in it, and I placed them in different ways. So the piece became very abstract, but it's still about that very vicious murder that happened. And one of the things that's going to happen uh, in the course of the exhibit is uh, the screening of the film The Murder of Fred Hampton. It's on Friday, December 7th. And it's got a lot of reservations already. A bunch of people on my Facebook page are already gone. <laughs> well, I think November 7th. I think it's uh, oh, December 7th. December 7th. I'm sorry. Okay, I'm sorry. If I may ask each one of you, what do the Black Panthers mean to you individually and maybe as artists for inspiration? So – I'm a little older than David, but I'm a <laughs> little – yeah, he's my little brother. Um, I'm a little younger than the birth of the Panther Party. But the, the, the cycles, the ripples, mm-hmm. um, the, the scent of what the Panther Party was – kept moving in Chicago. So you cannot be black in Chicago and not be aware of the Black Panther Party. And as a girl, I'm sorry, there are certain things that happen. Huey Newton was cute. So you look at cute. You know, when you're a girl, you look at, he was cute. Um, And then what he was doing was mind-boggling. And what the party was doing was... I wasn't looking at girls so much then, you know. When I when I finally met her about five years yeah. ago, I was on the floor like, oh my god, she's so cute. But yeah, she's she's a good looking woman, absolutely. Um, so it, so we know that the the free breakfast programs predated the Head Start and free breakfasts mm-hmm. in Chicago. And it was just everything they did right. was wonderful. 
And so I never thought of the Panther Party as outsiders to blackness might have thought of the militant and violent and scary. This was like brothers and sisters who were doing wonderful things, right. the ones you wanted to know. Right. Yeah. For me, um, it is literally the personification of revolution as a way of living life. Um, it, they, the idea that my existence, uh, my thriving, functioning in the world and just being um, accepted and normal is an act of revolution and to live and breathe that everywhere you walk mm-hmm. and go is sort of the energy that I get from the Black Panther Party and what it's always meant for me. Um, I, was, I was a teenager and um, traveled a lot as a young person. Um, uh, my father was in the military, so I was a military brat. And we were always in different places and I always... Um, was aware of my outsiderness, even when we came back to the States. And I went away, I happened to go away to a private school, and um, I discovered the Panthers there. Um, My parents are both activist-minded people, um, but uh, I had a lot of, you know, uh, not being comfortable in my own skin, uh, angst, as a as a young person, and um, I dealt with a lot of hostility. Um, I was in Colorado Springs in the eighties, um, and so a lot of racist hostility. And um, I read, I happened to read the prison letters of George Jackson mm-hmm. during that time, and that's where my interest in the Black Panther Party um, started to flourish. It wasn't until I was in my um, 30s, my late 30s, that I met uh, members of the Black Panther Party in Los Angeles, and they took me under their wing. And it was at a at a separate um, fundraiser that we got together and decided that we were going to create something like Iconic. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, they are um, like my aunties and uncles. You know, mm-hmm. um, they're they're very kind and brave people. And I, I've found as I've gotten older that kindness and bravery often go hand in hand. And I just aspire to to that. You know, they, they yeah. give me something to aspire to. Rosalind McGarry yeah. is with the Sepia Collective. They've helped bring the iconic Black Panther exhibit to Chicago. David Anthony Geary is here. Candace Hunter is here. They have pieces in the exhibit. Nari Safavi is co-founder of the Pasfarda Arts and Cultural Exchange. I wanted to ask a question about what the the, the kind of continuation. You, um, the Black Panther's inspiration is very much alive in all of you, and you see it clearly and feel it. Um, Around the rest of society, what do you think um, white people have to learn about the Black Panthers yet? Uh, There's got to be some, uh, I think in everybody's mind, a direct line to to what is happening today, to uh, Black Lives Matter movement, to any number of movements that you you see out there that go right back to everything about the Black Panthers. Um, And it seems like this exhibit is – is really popular among uh, African Americans, but uh, I, I don't know who else is coming. What do you think? Do you think more people should get interested? I absolutely think 
all of Chicago should be interested. And I, I think you're slightly wrong at the opening. There was every race and every age oh, in good. that space. Um, everybody was there from a 92-year-old artist whose work is in the show um, to uh, academics from the University of Chicago to children from the neighborhood. People stood in line outside in the cold to get into the opening. And it was every face of Chicago. And what's so wonderful, it's being on the south side. Rarely does the south side have this kind of opportunity for this kind of programming um, to the extent that it is and the welcoming of everyone. And it was just amazing to see all of the different faces in there. That's awesome. Yeah, we've experienced that at every show. We've had um, we had three thousand people come to Los Angeles, the Los Angeles show, and um, it is you know purposely we include everyone in the shows. The Panthers were about solidarity, and um, you know we know that they worked with uh, Brown Berets and. And the Gray Berets and and uh, or the Gray Panthers, the Gray Panthers, Gray Panthers, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the Young Patriots, and, and the you know, the, it goes on and on. So we try to um, mirror that model as best we can with the shows. They're multi-ethnic. Um, uh, um, we have artists from. 96 to I think 22 is our youngest artist you know artists who are just starting out well established artists who've been working for years and um, you know the exhibit goes until uh, January at the at the the uh, January 6th January is 6th. our closing yes iconic Black Panther and um, I hope a lot of people get to it may I thank some people sure let, let it rip okay um, like to thank uh, Tracy D Hall our curator of Rootwork Gallery um, Tracy Matthews at the Center for the Study of Race Politics and Culture at University of Chicago Rebuild Foundation um, Hank Jones um, Emory Douglas um, everyone who's come together to make this um, work. Uh, Rosalind McGarry, artist and founder of the Sepia Collective, and they put on the exhibit Iconic Black Panther, and you should check it out there at uh, the Stony Island Arts Building. Uh, nice to see you, Nari Safavi. Have it's a great, great weekend here. yourself. By the way, there were Iranian members of the Black Panthers, too. I know that. I've met them. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, I'll bet. <laughs> In I'm Chicago. <laughs> I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.